Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours, and I got the birthday boy in the house. We are blessed to have Blaine Bartlett, blainebartlett.com. Happy birthday, my friend. Hey, it's been a great one. It's uh, it's going to be a great year. Amazing. Our, Love it. It is amazing, and it keeps getting better and better. So, you know, one of the things that I've learned as I got older is that we have a different perspective that is the benefit of time, linear time, that there's certain things that only age provides us if we are looking for the lessons and we can gain wisdom and perspective. And it ranges from sports to uh, business to relationships. And uh, considering uh, we are all celebrating all that's celebratable, especially your birthday, you know, what are some of the things looking back that you have learned that you see are definitely uh, lessons that are equated to just plain living a longer life. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, I love the, the question. Uh, one thing that I really have really taken to heart is that there's very little in life that is serious. Uh, you know, Mike Dooley, uh, and you, you know, Mike, as well as I do, uh, he writes, uh, you know, this weekly thing called Tut. And I've played with this notion for years yeah, you know, when I was born, I was given a ticket and that ticket said admit one. And that's all it said. There were no guarantees written on it, no instruction manual or anything. Um, but what was interesting about the, the you know, I mentioned uh, Mike Dooley here for a moment. Um, that admit one was an admission into this domain of time and space. And time and space, you know, there, there are constraints that are implicit with both time and space. Um, you know, the limitations are illusory, but the experience is that they are real. And the older I get, the more I appreciate that the limitations that I think are present with time and space are literally illusory. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, I've got a lot less runway in front of me than I have in back of me, just in terms of a space context. But I'm having more fun today. I'm having. I'm more creative. I'm more productive. I'm more energetic. I'm more alive uh, than I've been in probably uh, the last sixty to seventy years. That's and amazing. I'm having a ball right now. I don't experience a whole lot of limits that I would have thought would come with, you know, when I was in my twenties, imagining being where I'm at today. It's kind of like, oh my God, I can't imagine being that old. I'm having a ball. I can't imagine being that young. Right. Yeah, no, that paradigm shift of, you know, hey, I am, what am I doing to interfere with it in understanding space of between we actually see or think that we see. But uh, you and I will have a celebratory tequila together and explore the time and space continuum as we have in the past. And I look forward to it celebrating with you and Cynthia. But we've been waiting in the wings. Ken on is hey. here. He's the president of Haggerty Marketplace, and I'm a huge fan of this business, Haggerty.com. I just, you know, as you know, I vacation every day, and one of the ways, Ken, I vacation is I jump in my 55 Ford Thunderbird, and I get down. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. And uh, it just transcends whatever's going on in the day, and with children and a dog who just had back surgery, and uh, multiple investments in businesses. Sometimes I just need that car to transcend me. Uh, and it is an energy. There's an experience. And you guys are the experts uh, in 
creating that experience and providing those experiences at the classic car events that most people are around in auctions, by the way, high profile auctions uh, around uh, the world. And uh, I just want to welcome you and thank you uh, because I've been a part of those for years. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm very nice to see you, David, and, and nice to see you playing. You know, so my first question, Ken, is there's certain things in life I talk about people buy on emotion for logical reasons. And when I attend your event, people are buying on emotion for logical reasons. Uh, there is a lifestyle in your membership. Uh, how important is it that emotion as it is in sports with cars and classic vehicles? Uh, I'm probably biased, but I think emotions is always logical, right? And and uh, it's it's all about emotions to me. Um, cars mean something, you know. Cars are, you know, generally we think about it as mode of transportation to go from point A to point B. Uh, but true car people think about cars as something that you know makes your heart beat, uh, makes you know sort of appeals to your emotions. And just like you said, jumping in that '55 Thunderbird. You know, for me, after a, a, you know intense week on an early Saturday morning, jumping in a car and you know just going for a drive with no destination, I, I don't know where point B is, but I'm driving from point A to to uh, enjoy the road and enjoy the sound of the engine. That that you know really means something. You know, Ken, I'm struck by what you're saying here, and I'm and I'm really impressed that Julie is letting David drive the the, the Thunderbird. <laughs> Uh, but what I, uh, the, the whole notion of beauty, um, yeah, classical cars are beauty. Art is beautiful. I mean, nice art is just, and beauty has something to do with the soul of that, whatever it is being expressed in that form. So when I hear you talking about getting in the car and I hear David talk about getting in, in the, in the Thunderbird and hearing the sound of the engine, I mean, there, there's a, there's, there's something there it, just the lines of a classic car. Where did you, and this is you know, kind of a curiosity question, uh, this is the first time we've met, where did you start appreciating the beauty such that it transcended um, <laughs> much of what was going on? Because you, you talk about emotion and logic. I, In my experience, I don't particularly think of emotion as being logical. I, <laughs> I, I, experience, it, I experience it as being something that just, it, it doesn't just, but it's something that appears when I'm touched by something, logically or illogically, I'm touched by it. Mm -hmm. Where did that come true for you or how did that come into place for you? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think we, by the way, I, I, I justify purchase of a car or having a car that seems very logical, but it's really the emotion that, that helps me define that logic and, and more <laughs> importantly, communicate to my wife why I need another car. But, um, you know, reflecting <laughs> back, yeah, reflecting back on my life, you know, I'm not sure if I appreciate the way I do now. I, I know I didn't, but at a very young age for me, um, cars were something that really appealed to me. Um, you know, I grew up in South Korea and in, in Seoul as a child, um, and my father used to travel abroad for business. And one of the things he did was, I guess it was just uh, total serendipitous, uh, where he brought some Matchbox cars. Uh, you know, when I was a, when I was a child and. Now, in Korea at the time, in the early 80s, there were only a handful of brands and a handful of models, uh, and they were all Hyundai ponies, and you know, you, you knew exactly what you were looking at all the time. And I guess I had an interest in cars since I was a kid. But man, when I saw you know a Matchbox car that was a Camaro and a Mercedes, and 
And it's just a totally different design aesthetic. So I remember just holding on to these things, really appreciating the the what it looked like. And you know, I, obviously that's very different than how I think about it now. But I do think even at a young age, just like you know, children can get really into art. Um, you know, there's a reason why people call cars rolling art, right? And yes. and for me, um, I think it was really the design, the you know, the idea that you push a, a pedal and this thing starts moving and just the imagination around what the car might sound like based on that matchbox. In fact, that's sort of how I learned English um, and alphabet, um, you know, because I, I wanted to know what it's called. And on the if you look at the bottom of those cars, it actually shows, you know, says what it is. And so my father says, oh, that's a Ford Mustang. You know, how, how do you do, how do you read that? And so, yeah, it's, it's uh, part of my development. I guess I was Ever since I, probably I was six or seven years old when I started to really like it. And then from that point on, I think cars have been always part of my life. Um, I never thought uh, my passion for cars and interest for cars would intersect with my career. Um, but, uh, you know, Nikhil Haggerty, who's the CEO of Haggerty, and I were having a conversation not too long ago. And he said, you know, the great thing about it is we get to do this. We, it's, it's not that it's our job and we have to do this. Uh, we get to work with clients. We get to work around cars. We get to see, you know, uh, people bidding at auctions. We get to uh, bring cars to auctions or, or attend uh, events and concourse. So, yeah, I, I think um, for me that that first moment—I don't know the exact date or moment—but it was somewhere when I was six or seven years old. To answer your question. Uh, yeah. And you have an event coming up uh, this week in St. Moritz and next week uh, in Dallas. Uh, there's always an event going on, uh, but there's also the digital side and the business side of what goes on, which is just expanded. And I love the intersection of your passion with cars because it's occurred with me. I remember thinking and being so disappointed when I was graduating law school uh, to be an oil and gas litigator. And I thought, wow, now I'm going to get in the internet, but you know, I've been a kid that carried a football around with me since I was five years old. And although I realized in college uh, that dream was going to die in college uh, of playing football for the rest of uh, my opportunity to play, uh, it was funny that it intersected quite uh, early in my career, even though if you would have connected the dots backwards, I never would have believed I ended up where I did uh, with Lee Steinberg and Warren Moon, et cetera. But there's so much business. I see cars as a backdrop, just like I see sports. There's insurance. There's an online marketplace. There's, you know, classifieds. There's so many different parts and pieces of this business that you guys have provided quality service uh, and advice uh, and financing of cars. You know, mm -hmm. we're talking about billions of dollars in each of these areas. Uh, my thing is with all the different opportunities how do you rank out the personal events? Because uh, I know Blaine and I talk about there's so much virtual in the world. There's so much digital. There's so much. But, you know, I see a huge trend that people are going to value driving an actual car and also showing up to events and buying a car at an auction in person, not just digitally. Yeah, that's a good, good question. Um, Digital and you know, the proliferation of internet and the amount of information that's out there has really changed uh, the hobby as well as uh, how people are knowledgeable about cars now and the amount of information that's out there. Um, but I would argue that those, all of those things are great and additive, but have 
not replaced in-person uh, gatherings, in-person driving. You know, I, and I, I say that because you think about the lockdown that we had a few years ago during COVID. Um, you know, uh, partic industry participants like us had no other option but to just rely on the digital channel. Um, when, uh, if, you know, interestingly, the, the collectors really quickly adapted. And I'm not just talking about auctions. I'm talking about virtual gatherings, you know, looking at classifieds, uh, all of the rest, um, Zooms. But when that lockdown started to wane and people were able to gather, by that point, there were some questions around, is this going to change the hobby? Are we no longer going to have live auctions and live gatherings and live concord? Totally contrarily, when things opened up, it came back with a big, big you know, force. And I think the reason is we talked about passion and, and emotion earlier more than logic. And it is, it's something that stirs our soul, but it's also something that we share with other enthusiasts and collectors, the interests. So, uh, when we started to open up auctions, and now if you look at the Concord events, whether that's a Pebble or the Amelia, there are you know more attendees there than we've ever seen even prior to COVID lockdowns. And I think that goes back to um, people view a lot of these events as not just getting together. And, and of course, you can see the cars in person, you can touch them, you can feel them. You open the door, you smell them, right? And 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 someone, you know, the owner starts the car and you could hear it. So those are all things that really stir our souls and, you know, and, and appeal to our senses. But beyond that, it's the people that you see at these events. Um, yeah, that, that's, you know, that's great, great way to gather, reconnect. And I think we as human beings, we're social animals, right? And, and uh, you know, uh, gathering is, you know, right now we have a virtual conversation. It's great. But if we're all three of us were in a room together, I think it'd be even better. Right. I know it would yeah. be in Pebble Beach would be a great place to be in person together. That's for <laughs> <Yeah>. sure. <laughs> that works anyway, uh, Ken on, uh, if you are not familiar with Haggerty and all the different things that they're doing, if you haven't attended an auction, a classic car, event, if you haven't driven a classic car, if you aren't part of at least, you know, I love as an entertainment, just looking at the classifieds, it's so much fun. And that's why I ended up buying the car is I was just, searching classifieds and i brought up this ford thunderbird and my wife leaned over and said that's my dream car and i made it her 50th uh, uh her 50th birthday present uh as yeah. a surprise held it there in michigan for nine months uh but i appreciate uh, all the different things that you've done for me in my life and my experience yeah. and we, we love it thank you so much that's great thank you yeah that's great <laughs> we'll see you soon i love great it. to meet you glad you back on thank very you nice Wow, great guest to start oh. off. Now, I've been super excited as well. So today's like a passion day for me. I, you know, I love love the cars, I love the classified. But if anyone has watched my content, including this mm -hmm. show, which is uh, 537 episodes with an average of three and a half people, don't ask me how they come up with that. So it's thousands <laughs> of interviews. The way I close almost every interview I do is be more interested than interesting. It's one of my favorite quotes ever. I don't even remember where I learned it or how I learned it, but I've been stealing it or re-quoting it. I can't find the person who first said it, but this is the CEO of my quote, uh, the CEO of Learn It, and uh, his book, The Learn It All Leader, is absolutely aligned with being more interested than the know-it-all, being interesting. 
And uh, he gives some great advice, uh, not just in the theoretical, but actually how to have the learn it mindset as a leader, how to have the different characteristics and traits uh, as a leader uh, to learn it all. And of course, the pragmatic tools, the skills and the knowledge that's necessary to be a learn it all. Welcome to the show, Damon Lemby, my learn it all hero. Thanks for joining us. Well, David and Blaine, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me today. Well, I'm sure Blaine is equally as excited as I am. Now, uh, you give an approach about something I've never really thought about inherent in this idea of a know-it-all is if you are a know-it-all and you're more interesting than interested, then most likely you're probably struggling with being an imposter, uh, hiding from something. Uh, I think in your book, you kind of approach a, a way that we can reveal or elevate an awareness to this imposter syndrome and utilize your book in order to effectuate learning more, growing more, accelerating more in our lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to. I mean, my, my whole approach is, you know, you have learn-it-alls and you have know-it-alls, however you want to however you want to call it. And I just look at learn-it-alls as um, people who come into it with, a, with an open mind. You know, I typically think that there's uh, four traits that really come down to being a learn-it-all, which are humility, curiosity, courage, and, uh, and also integrity. You know, and when I talk about, let's say with courage, a lot of times it's like getting out of your comfort zone, kind of like you said a second ago, David, is just like not being afraid to admit that you don't know everything and, and being curious as to what else is out there and maybe that your opinion isn't, isn't always the best way and that you're, you're open to learn more. And like you said earlier also, uh, a second ago, it's like a lot of times the so-called know-it-alls, it's because they're hiding something or maybe they truly lack self-confidence. Yeah. You know, I've, I've spent probably close to 40 years in the field of leadership development, uh, worked with some of the largest companies and some of the most successful leaders on the planet. Uh, and one of the things that uh, I was struck with very early on, and this continues to carry itself forward, is the focus on the titular leader, the formal leader in an organization. And what's missing in that, I want to just check this out with you, Damon, is the second, the first and second followers. Uh-huh. who are also leaders, because if they didn't you know, take up the task and all of a sudden they look behind them and they got folks following them, uh-huh. they end up being leaders too. So where my question uh, lands here is in the work that you do uh, at Learn It, is there a focus on a broad spectrum uh, conversation around what does it actually mean to be an effective leader, which is embedded in learning? Great question. And uh, <clears throat> so my definition as leader, to, to, be, to be completely honest, is you don't have to lead a small team or a large team. I think everybody, Blaine, is, can be a leader. You know, whether, whether you're an individual contributor or, you know, as a parent or whatever it is, you, you could lead in your own way. And so, yes, I think that it goes down the one or two levels. It's, it's about how you carry yourself and, and how you can model your behavior and uh, around others. Mm-hmm. And inherent in being a learn it all as well, we in, have to shift our perspective of leadership as well as in recruitment and retention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that when we are learn it all is that we take a more uh, of an approach of what is somebody's potential 
rather than their history. And, you know, when we're a learn-it-all, it is inherent in potential. When we're know-it-alls or we're looking for know-it-alls, then we're really looking at a historical analysis of success or relationship capital. Um, how does that relationship between the potential and history uh, result in, you know, creating a bigger and better organization and better leaders? Well, one of the first things you mentioned that we deal with a lot, and Blaine, I'm sure you did in your 40 years of leadership, is uh is is retention and attrition which is a huge cost associated with that and so i i think that uh organizations it's it's important to invest in your team and develop as leaders uh i'm also a big believer david when possible to hire for a potential over experience now you can't in every situation of course but i mean that's what i've kind of you know, over the last 28 years at Learn It, that's really uh, what I feel like I've been able to build a great culture or, or and it's because I've hired people who are smarter than me, you know, who are better than me, who have diverse opinions. Yeah. But then and, and also it's more than just that. You also have to kind of sit back and give them the space to do the works, give them the space to learn, grow and make mistakes. Um I'm sure you're familiar with the, the Southwest story uh, about the 10-minute the turn. You yeah, know, with Herb, yeah. yeah, with Herb. I refer to that. I talk about it in my book, but I've referred to that hundreds of times, right? That's the only way they could, you know, the short version of the story is for your listeners out there who haven't heard it. The only way they could, you know, do enough flights to, you know, stay in business and keep the fares down was to have a 10-minute term where the industry average was like 15, 16 minutes. And when Herb took it to his uh, executive team and board, they're like, you're crazy. There's no way we can do this. We need to turn We need to hire people from Continental, Eastern Airlines, all of this. And he said the exact opposite. He's like, I'm not hiring any of those people because they're gonna, there's no way they're going to believe that we can do this. I'm going to hire sharp individuals who are, don't know any better and train them up and give them the opportunity and tell them that this is what we have to do. And they got it down to 10 minutes, which is, yeah. which, is which is awesome, I think. Yeah. And unreasonable people tend to get unreasonable results. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you just kind of move in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to dream big, too. You know, I mean, you, you got to you got to go for it. And a lot of that comes from an athletic background. I always love we were talking before of my dream of being a football player yeah. and uh, that dream dying. I think you also dreamed of being an MLB star yourself. And uh, the carryover, though, through all the education, the curriculum, all the personal development of being even a learn it all, uh, it doesn't substitute the learning in the experiential realm as well. Oh, totally. And so, uh, yeah. you know, for yeah. me, the athletic side of what I've done is really lended itself because I was a student of football, not just a player. How important was it for you to be a student of baseball, for example, uh, and how have you carried that forward into your book and into your career? So I was listening uh, to one of your previous episodes where you talked about how as a Division three football player, um, you know, you you learn more there carry forward in your life than, than you did through business school or, or everything. And I, I mean, I feel the same way. Absolutely. And it's funny. I uh, had lunch the other day with uh, some guy I just met who's a big private equity guy. And he was uh, number three or 400 in the world 15 years ago in tennis. 
and he didn't even know anything about my book. And he just he just said, you played baseball at Arizona State, right? I'm like, yeah. And so he went through the David the same thing about how he learned so much more there than he did at Wharton or anywhere else, you know, about how mm-hmm. uh, how to do it, uh, you know, how to lead or how to be successful in the business world. Um, yeah, like what I talk about in my book is I was fortunate enough to play. I played for three Hall of Fame college baseball coaches uh, at Pepperdine, Andy Lopez and a uh, guy by the name of John Nochi, and then and then at Arizona State, um, uh, Jim Brock, who is super, you know, coach everybody from Barry Bonds and whatever. And um, I really, I took what I learned there. I, I was a student of baseball, you know, because I enjoyed it. And I, uh, but more than anything, I just wanted to work hard at it. But the lessons I learned from each of those individuals is what helped me really model my leadership skills uh, and, you know, the successes and failures that go along with it over the years. Yeah. It's amazing. I just have to comment one thing, Blaine, real quick. One of the statistics that I love is, I mean, it's extraordinary statistic. I think it's over 90% of women executives in the fortune 500 played college sports. Yeah. So, yeah. So if you, I mean, you really can see it, especially in that realm. I mean, the numbers are just stagnant, like what they learn it, what we learn on the yeah. field, it carries over the greatest training ground to be a leader, I believe, and an intelligent follower, but also to be consistent and persistent in the pursuit of your potential, which is also aligned with this learn it all type of philosophy. Sorry for interrupting you, but you got our last question. Yeah, no, I mean, just you know, that, that whole idea of sports. I mean, I was a, a college gymnast and yeah, you know, that, that, you know, in university you're a big, you're a big gymnast, Blaine. You, I was most a big gymnast. gymnast built like yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have been a gymnast. I'd have been much better. <laughs> but the I idea think. of learning, I mean, and this is what I'm actually uh, keying in here, uh, Damon, is the most effective leaders, yeah, are, are they position themselves as curious, not just curious. Curiosity opens the door, but they're, in, to David's point, they're interested. Mm-hmm. And that was you know, for me what allowed me to excel to the degree I did in gymnastics at the university was I, I'd see a routine I'd see I'd see something that uh, or I'd yeah I'd read something in gymnast magazine I'd go ooh that I get curious about it and then I'd start pulling it apart without the assumption that I had any bloody clue in the world how to do this thing <laughs> and that I think is a hallmark of an effective leader is that they're willing to move beyond their facade and that vulnerability. You can't learn unless you're going to be willing to be vulnerable. Would that be uh, a, an accurate assessment on uh, in your experience? Yeah, I think so. And and one of the things that you said right there was about, you know, reading about this or seeing this. One of the things I learned is, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. So you can yeah. take you could take different aspects from different people and you can try it out and you can kind of piece it together for yourself. Um, whether it comes to leadership or innovation or, or whatever you do. So I think that that is a very important part. And I think one of the, one of the key traits uh, or skills that, that athletes have is the ability to learn. And I really think that learning agility mm-hmm. is one of the really top skills, especially in the, in the world we're in right now where the lifespan of skills are what, from five years to about two or even less is yep. the ability to keep learning and being vulnerable is a big part of that because uh, I think there's a paradox in being vulnerable. It's you want to be open, but you also have to be self-confident. You have to be be confident in your ability to say, Hey, you know what? I don't know all this. I'm going to try this and not being afraid to fail. 
you know, sometimes um, people aren't vulnerable because they just, they just, where we started this conversation earlier, they lack the self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Just read the Perfect. Dao Ching. Read the Dao Ching and uh, realize uh, how being quiet and learning uh, portrays ourselves in a radical, humble way, uh, which creates greater growth and, and greater potential uh, in our lives, which is yeah, completely aligned. Uh, the Learn It All Leader is a must read. Uh, and there, there's where we can get it on Amazon right there um, and learn how to have the mindset, the traits and the tools to effectuate pursuing your potential and learning whether you're on the field, off the field, in the boardroom or in uh, your home remotely working. The learn it all attitude is something that obviously Blaine and I uh, definitely adhere to. I would like to mention one thing. We know uh, we can't guess exactly what Blaine's age is on his birthday here, but uh, <laughs> if he's reading Gymnast Magazine, we know he's not 25 years old. Yeah, so. I was going to say, where do you find Gymnast Magazine these days? <laughs> yeah, because I guarantee you. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, gy- Gymnasts today are watching YouTube. There's no doubt about it. Much You would have done much better in gymnastics uh, if you had YouTube back then. That's I would have. <laughs> slow-mo <laughs> and videos. Out of there. That's yeah, these these were stop-action pictures. Yeah, get, yeah get some get some. Uh, You're, you had to flip those flashcards. You are flipping yeah. them real quick. Oh, yeah, the, flip it where the, pa- yeah the, the pages go like that. That's okay. My uncle directed the first Super Bowl, and he recently passed my uncle Larry, who Blaine actually met uh, in yeah. Miami, Maryland. But uh, he did the first replay at the Super Bowl, and what he did was he taped up pictures on a, a chalkboard, and he slowly showed the pictures, and that's what created the replay. Come on. The very very first Super Bowl replay was a bunch of pictures on a chalkboard that he taped up in sequential order to show a replay uh, and slowing down the aperture. It was a pretty interesting, a great story and tidbit, but we're learning every day. The learned our leader himself. Uh, thank you, David, for joining us. Come back, join us more. I'm sure Blaine wants you to have him on his shows and we have many other shows. Love to Blaine. Love to have you on. Good. Great I'll, guest. I'll reach David, out to you, David. Thanks. Reach out to me. Thanks, Blaine. <laughs> great job. Bye-bye, David. Thank you. All right, Edward's warming up. He's stretching in the green room right now. Eduardo <laughs> is here. Eduardo Rosano, uh, global keynote speaker and facilitator, right up our alley, uh, Blaine. And he's written a, a book, The Performance Paradox. Uh, and we have a reconciliation between the power of mindset in action. Uh, karma actually is defined as action. So I'm really curious how karma interplays within the performance paradox as well welcome to the show eduardo thank you david blaine great to be here great to have you yeah well you know we can't just get on the stages and speak and to be a global keynote speaker means that we've uh had a well-developed idea and through that i think is illustrative of what you are actually teaching in the performance paradox because in order to be a global keynote speaker, you, I think, have to actually uh, take action to the power of the mindset and the experiences uh, and have great growth and other things. For you, I'd love for uh, if you could tell me how you've utilized the performance paradox to become a global keynote speaker. Sure. Uh, so the performance paradox um, is something that I learn from other people and in in working with other people Uh, and it is the counterintuitive reality that 
if we focus only on performing, our performance suffers. If we're only focused on getting things done as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes, we stagnate. We stay at the same level of effectiveness. And I realized that I was doing this in my career. Uh, I was trying to always look like I knew everything. And, you know, if I received feedback, I would um, I react defensively, like make up stories and rationalize why what people were saying was not true. Um, I wasn't working to improve. I was working to prove myself. And I learned a lot of these things in starting to work with uh, Stanford professor Carol Dweck, which I started working with in 2007. She's been my mentor ever since. And I learned what her work is, which is that it, it, in order to improve, we have to believe that we can change. That's called a growth mindset. But I also learned that a growth mindset is, is key, is necessary, but it's not sufficient. We also need to know how to change and how to grow. And the, the foundation of that is the distinction between learning and performing. And we need to to do both of those things. And so how to do those things as individual teams and organizations is what my book, The Performance Zone, is a, The Performance Paradox is about. You know, there's I, there's a, a drive-by phrase that you tossed out there that I want to come back to. Working to prove versus working to improve. And that, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, when you said that, I just grabbed my pen and I wrote this down. Um, the performance paradox, yeah, the, and, and when I first saw the title, it's kind of like performance paradox. Right? What's the paradox embedded in there? And it's, it is about I'm proving myself. That's, the, that's where you, know, you get wrapped around the axle. Uh, so to speak. Yeah, well, that's my grandfather's term. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of I'm, I'm, I'm coming, I'm, I'm thinking of the British cycling team here. And when they you know, ended up w winning the tour, they had they had never placed, let alone they hardly even showed up. But they started improving because they weren't trying to prove anything. And the whole focus was, let's bite-size this. Let's chunk this down and look at what we can do to improve putting our feet on the pedal, getting our feet into the stirrup quickly. You know, it's kind of like, you know, John Wooden, let's practice putting our socks on. Um, those sorts of things. What, where did this come from for you? I'm always fascinated by this, uh, this question, Eduardo. Where, what was the germ that led you down this path that actually illuminated something that I think is actually quite profound? Yeah, it was a number of things. One of those things was I had the privilege of um, get, getting to know uh, the late Professor Anders Ericsson, who coined the term deliberate practice. And um, in helping people, when people were very, a growth mindset, which is kind of the work of Carol Dweck that we've been doing for the last 16 years, uh, people became really interested in that. And, and, and Microsoft in particular was the first company to, to deliberately build a, a growth mindset culture. And a lot of other organizations became interested in, in building cultures of learning and performing. And in the early days of that, in, in, when I was doing workshops with executives, trying to help them see the, the, the work of the, the importance of improvement and learning, I would talk a lot about deliberate practice and the work of Anders Ericsson. And people were interested in that. But deliberate practice is what you're saying that kind of cyclists or, or John Wooden do where, you know, you, you might kind of be very specific about how you put your socks on or very, be very specific about how you do a particular move in, in, in uh, like a drop shot or, you know, top spin or whatever it is. Uh, and for people, they find it to be interesting, but it's less applicable for everyday life. And so what I, I was iterating, trying to get people to, to, get something that, that they could act upon in the modern workplace. And I realized that deliberate, one thing that distinguishes deliberate practice from 
from other things is the difference between performing, trying to do things as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes, or learning, which is leaping into the unknown, doing things that are specific activities that are designed for improvement rather than designed for immediate results. And I realize that there are other, there, there's deliberate practice, but there's other, a lot of other strategies that we can use for that, like experimentation or soliciting feedback or, you know, what we, how we structure our meetings, you know, that are not just about getting things done, but also sharing what we're learning or sharing questions we have for each other. And those are things that are different than just getting things done. So it was a search for myself to better understand and learning from people who have done a lot of great work and in trying to help other people figure out how do they build cultures of learning and high performance in their organizations. Amazing. I uh, am also, uh, I wanted always to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but instead I got to represent them and market the Pro Football Hall of Fame with my business partner, Warren Moon. But you're in a Hall of Fame I'm trying to get into, and I was wondering, how do you get inducted into the Happiness Hall of Fame? Yeah, that was surprising to me, too. I'd never heard of that until I was doing a keynote once, and somebody approached me after the keynote, and they say, hey, we're we're from the Happiness Hall of Fame, and we're here because we're we really love your work, and we would like to induct you into the hall. I was like, well, that sounds really cool. That sounds amazing. <laughs> but it actually is, is it is really meaningful to me because I grew up very unhappy. Actually, I didn't like the world. I didn't like a lot of things about the world. And the change, you know, growth mindset is about the belief that we can change and the deliberate work to continue to change throughout our lives. The, the change in myself that I've made that is most meaningful to me is the, the I've learned how to be happy and how to generate happiness and my own emotions from within myself. Rather than before, I used to think that happiness was a function of my circumstances. And, and if I just did this or if I just accomplished this, then I would be happy. And I realized actually happiness is a choice and like a set of habits that I can build in order to change my whole life experience. So because of that big change I've made in myself, that recognition is really meaningful to me. And it should be. Yeah, that's, I mean, and, and it's very much aligned with the, the whole notion of, uh, you know, the idea of uh, working to improve, you know, because everything we do is a habit. I mean, over time, you know, anything that we practice, brushing my teeth becomes habituated and, yeah, you know, I'm off to the races. I don't even think about it anymore. Most people, by the time they get to be our ages, and I think we've got about four decades covered here, <laughs> at least, uh, <laughs> we've practiced a lot of things. And when we stop learning, and in and, Vordo, and I just want to acknowledge you bringing this book to the uh, to the table. Uh, that that distinction, I, I'm very struck by that distinction. I come back to that. You know, learn, you know, you know, working to improve, continuously improve, and uh, that's the source of happiness in life. It is. You know, I, I get one. I said this at the right top of the show. I get a ticket. It says admit one, and uh, there's no guarantees. So I get to I get to make it up, and. You've got a, a pretty good, I think, roadmap there for how to make it up effectively. Thanks, Blaine. And I appreciate and I agree with what you're saying in that happiness or this improvement, right? These habits to improve and to continue to evolve are not only change the destination, our results, our performance, but also they change the journey. They make us happy because they they create awe and discovery but also we can get to know each other better because we're more curious we ask more questions we listen better so we we develop deeper relationships and we also experience less anxiety and depression because we all struggle we all you know there's changes going on all the time and when we are not focused on continuous improvement then those changes 
feel harder. They feel more permanent. They feel like things that are more a threat to us as opposed to things that we can learn from and overcome. Beautiful. You know, I was blessed to watch a very popular TED talk of yours, um, how to get better at things you care about. And I think inherent in that, in the pursuit of our potential to improve, a lot of people, they want to get better, but they haven't uh, really focused in on, well, it's a lot easier to get better at things I care about than just get better at things. Um, And it takes attention plus intention to create the coincidences that we want. Um, How impactful is it uh, within the context of improvement to think about what we care about first and then figure out how to get better at that. Yeah, it's super important because um, first is it's not effective to try to get better at everything, like you're saying. I mean, that's just not effective. So it's important to be clear about what do I want to spend my energy on and my focus and attention on both to perform and to learn. Um, and so getting clear on what's most important to us, then we can direct our, our efforts toward that. But also because when when we are clear on what our highest level goals are, then we're less likely to get lost in whatever's in our to-do list. You know, we tend to just have a bunch of stuff in our to-do list, be super busy, busy to get those things done and just focus on executing and performing that to-do list and not asking the question of why do I care about this in the first place? Like, right. Ask, asking why a couple of times to, so that we uncover what is most important to us and then ask the question, how can I get better at that thing that is most important? And the answer might be doing something completely different. That's one of my to-do list. It might be a completely different strategy. That's amazing. Well, Eduardo, you are doing great work and there's no doubt why you've been inducted into the happiness hall of fame. And if uh, you have any nominations available, Blaine Bartlett would be my first choice. Uh, That man is incredible. He has enlightened and empowered so many people to be happy He is on my mission of empowering others to empower others to be happy. Eduardo is a global keynote speaker. Check out both of his TED Talks. He is also an amazing author of The Performance Paradox. Go ahead, turn the power of mindset into actual action. Action is the karma that we all desire. Eduardo, come and join us again. Once again, Blaine, I'm sure you would love to get into depth about uh, all that's here and how we can improve instead of prove. That's my takeaway for this uh, great interaction. Thank you. Thank you, David. I second that nomination and great to meet you both. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. There is, there is Thank you, Eduardo. present for you. The induction into hey, the Hall of Fame. Uh, it's a day of paradox, my friend. And uh, we would be remiss but to have an extraordinary cleanup hitter coming up. The Dr. Nicole Price is here, CEO of Lively Paradox, drnicoleprice.com. And... Uh, you know, her uh, book is one in which, you know, I think to me is at the core of, in Chinese culture, the main meaning, spark the heart. Uh, and it's determinative upon empathy um, and utilizing empathy to engineer a better place, a better circumstance, a better situation in our organizations. Uh, welcome to Office Hours, Dr. Nicole Price. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I want to start with the illogical, uh, which is that uh, you believe, I think you believe, I don't like to talk for others, that uh, there was no place for empathy in the business uh, world. Is, is that true? 
Well, at one point in my life, I was one of those people for sure. <laughs> nice. And what, what, what led you to the new paradox, the lively paradox, uh, that empathy may actually play a critical role in critical decision-making in business or organizations? Well, there are two ways to learn empathy, I think, and one is in a classroom setting, but the other way is through a series of life experiences. And uh, and I chose the harder way, which is a series, <laughs> <laughs> which is a series of life experiences. And uh, I used to believe that empathy was the enemy of productivity. Um, yeah, uh, as an engineer, if I've got 50 million parts I need to get out at the end of the week, I need to be able to plug Blaine in if David can't make it. And so you do tend to start thinking of people as cogs in a wheel because Blaine's personal situation can't get in the way of production. And um, I had no idea that my training was causing me to act sometimes in inhumane, unempathetic ways. Uh, but but because of a series of personal experiences, I recognize that there are people at the end of our data points. And if we can recognize that, uh, it'll help us uh, in getting our outcomes. There are people at the end of our data point. I just <laughs> love the terms and phrases. That That's a true engineer. <laughs> that is. You know, I was doing some work at IBM years and years and years and years and years and years ago, and we were talking about feelings and empathy. And... And this is no lie. Yeah, one of them you know, raised their hand and said, can you de define define feeling for me? Mm. And, uh, you know, I think it was jo yeah, uh, James Joyce wrote a book uh, called The Dubliners. And there's a character in the book, uh, actually in the opening uh, couple of paragraphs in the book, uh, Mr. Duffy. And the, the opening line was, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and the book goes on to describe you know, this abysmal life that Mr. Duffy has got because he isn't connected. And, um, and that connection wasn't just connected to self, but as a consequence, con not connected to anybody else or even connected to his life. So when you're talking about Spark the Heart, I'm, I'm very in, in, intrigued here, uh, Dr. Price. The, how, how do you engineer to your term here, engineer empathy in the organization such that it becomes not just an intellectual construct, but it mm -hmm. actually becomes a living part of the work experience. I'm so glad that you brought up the concept of feelings and emotions because I was horrible at that. And I worked at a place where almost everyone around me uh, were feelers. That's what I, that's what I called them. We were in the business of emoting. Uh, but my job was to take one product and make 50 million of them. Um, and so I learned very quickly that when someone would ask me how I was, I wouldn't say fine, because they had this masterful art of realizing if you weren't fine, or if like, was there anything under that? They'd come back by your office later and say, are you sure you're okay? And so I adopted a habit of when someone would ask me how I was doing, I would say, fantastic. If there were, if I were any better, there'd be two of me. And that would cause those people to leave me alone. And it was <laughs> pure strategy. Like, I don't have time for you and your feelings. I've got things to do. And um, I read a book called Permission to Feel. And I think it's a wonderful compliment to my work because there's something called the mood meter. And it has a hundred different emotions or moods on it. And I was, I was given an assignment by my therapist 
three times a day, I want you to check your mood and pick one of these things because fantastic is not a feeling. (laughs) 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 All, All right, fantastic is not a feeling. But also when I was teaching emotional intelligence classes, I was teaching people how to appear with gravitas, which is the definition of showing up without emotion or feeling and being neutral um, because you have the ability to calm the rest of the organization. The problem with that is suppressed emotions always come out, just not at the time we want them to. Um, And so, yes. So one of the ways that I engineer empathy is to help people actually get in touch with their emotions. You don't have to tell anybody else if you don't want to be vulnerable in that way, but you need to express it Uh, You can either write it down or with a trusted colleague or partner if you don't want to, you don't trust someone else, and then you can regulate. But if you try to regulate before you understand and recognize, that's what's causing so many problems inside our bodies, but also problems inside our organizations. People are hurting. And we are giving them lectures instead of hugs. And uh, and I'm in the hugging business today. Nice. <laughs> I love it. There, there's so many things that go with it. You know, I remember someone telling me about suppressed emotions, that it's lemon juice. And I'm mm. like, what do you mean it's lemon juice? I said, here's the problem with suppressed emotions is not only do they come out when we don't want them, but they come out when we're squeezed the most, when we squeeze oh. the lemon. And, you know, when I watched Will Smith at the greatest honor oh. of his life, I thought, yeah. lemon juice. Lemon juice. There, there's lemon juice right there. That's there's what they were juice. saying to me. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's interesting because uh, you, you are, you know, an extraordinary uh, example of growth and, and of having an open mind in a very closed-minded situation as an engineer. Um, and one of the things that really struck a chord with me, because I'm the opposite. I, you know, I'm a clear sentient. I feel everything and I cry on stage and, and I hug everybody. And, uh, but it it was interesting because on the other side, uh, we both ended up in the same place that had an extraordinary, I think, impact on our life. And you mentioned your therapist. And as much as I'm a clear sentient in, uh, this feeler in, in touch with my emotions, my whole life, I had some childhood trauma that I had to deal with that I was suppressing that it took until I was 50 years old with, you know, another great kick in the ass from my wife, who's always, you know, making sure that I reach my potential. Uh, that's what she's been put here on earth in my existence for is she's not going to let my life waste away. Uh, it has saved it several times. Uh, you know, people just assumed that I had been to a therapist since my thirties, since I lost everything, <laughs> like I'd be the guy for sure. Sharing my feelings, paying someone, an hour to share my feelings. That's me, right? But uh, what was the catalyst for you being a non-feeler to actually take, because there's a big step for the feeler, me. uh, How'd you take that big step uh, to go to a therapist and realize this may actually help you? Honest answer? Yeah. So when I first started going, it was just so I could have a private space and they were sworn to secrecy. (laughs) I wasn't I wasn't going because I was trying to get help. I was going because I needed a confidant. You got to interrupt you because people ask me about meditation. I always tell them, <laughs> honestly, the lady that taught me to meditate said I can raise your awareness. And she literally evoked the fact that I wanted to learn how to be aware when to buy or sell. 
like the most non-meditative thing in the world. That's how I started meditation. I wanted to raise my awareness to when to buy or sell. But go ahead. It's very similar. Listen, it, it, you know, it's like, what's in it for me? You know, that's what most people are. I mean, let me not project onto other people. That was what it was for me. How can I have a private space? This person sworn to secrecy. My executive coach within the organization, I knew that person was not sworn to secrecy. So mm -hmm. I was using therapy in that way. And when my mother died, um, I was just like anybody else who, you know, has a parent who dies, you're, you're grieving, you get your three days of bereavement, then you go back to work. The problem was my mother had been killed by a drunk driver. So we were then launched into this murder trial that drug on forever. And I was back at work. We're going to court. We're seeing the, the police report with all the gory details, all the things. Right. And when I would get to work, my boss, lovely person would say, how are you, you know, how are you doing? And then two seconds later, okay, let's talk about where we are on these projects. Yeah. I did the empathy. Now let's go to work. <laughs> That's exactly right. I did that thing HR told me to do. And so now let's talk about these outcomes. And for one of the first times in my life, I was on the other side of what that feels like. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. Yeah. One of the reasons that David and I uh, wrote Compassionate Capitalism was literally about the missing of you know, you know, the lack of empathy in an organization. And one of the catalysts for me when I start, sat down and actually drafted the book and, and outlined it was my good friend Raj Sisodia had written a book called Firms of Endearment, mm. which I think is one of the best book titles I have ever heard in my life. Oh, Firms it's of endearment. fantastic. I and love that. And what he did was he charted organizations that actually had love, empathy, care as a formal value set. And how did they perform against the uh, uh, S&P? How did they uh, perform against Jim Collins's good to great companies? Mm. They, it wasn't just an incremental improvement over those two categorical uh, classes. It was exponential performance improvements because people were connected. Not yeah. just to each other, but they got connected to vision. They got connected. They cared about. They cared about what was going on. Yeah. yeah. You know, blind people always ask me, they say, well, how else would she have been able to ask you about your personal life and then also ask you about your work? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think the answer is really simple. Just don't try to do those two things in the same meeting. Exactly. Beautiful. Exactly. Dr. Nicole Price, I tell you, I, Glenn and I both want to come or even speak at the Empathy Summit next year in August. <laughs> I would love to do that. Yeah. That is so <laughs> up my alley. And I know it is for Dave, too. Yeah, oh we, we can show up as uh, recent recipients of the uh, uh, Happiness, Happiness Hall of Fame Award. <laughs> the Happiness Hall of Fame Award. That's me. I heard about that. I was listening yeah. in. I want to I want to get that award. That's nice. Well, we have more shows, and I want to next time talk about the lead workshop of logic, yes. empathetic, accountable, and decision-making, all in the context of the books that Blaine and I have written, uh, some within the context of, you know, I got what game time decision-making, compassionate capitalism. Uh, we'll probably have the five daily practices and don't do business with dicks out by then. So <laughs> we'll have lots to talk about over the next year. Uh, it'll be a month before Blaine's next birthday as well. So we can celebrate early. Dr. Nicole Price, thank you for joining us. Everyone check out the book, Spark the Heart. Uh, if they could spark the heart in this doctor, they can spark the heart in anyone. Thanks for joining us. Take care now.
You're you awesome. Bet. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> what a paradox that was. I uh, CEO of Lively Paradox, by the way, drnicoleprice.com. If you want to uh, check that out, there's a lot to, to move with there. Blaine, real quick, uh, got a tight Kick schedule. I have about three three minutes till my next call. What's your takeaway of the day? Paradox. The ability paradox. to hold the paradox. Yeah, the ability to hold two truths. And in, so performance is valued. So is learning. Yeah, they are two truths. You can hold them both and not be captured just by one. Uh, so that's going to be my takeaway today. Um, yeah, be willing to wrestle with paradox. That's amazing. So was the Tao Te Ching as well with Latsu and his paradox of everything. Uh, so I love that. I'm going to go with the one I thought you were going to go with. So I was trying to think of another one because I thought for sure it was going to be Prove versus improvement, I, I know uh, which, was a there. which is a paradox. So you, you were tangential to the genius of, of this show. Uh, I want to once again thank you, Blaine, uh, who has made you know all these shows so wonderful, and our team, who just keeps surprising me. You know, I, I, I watch a, a lot of different content, and I'll put these uh, guests up uh, in the information we're sharing uh, with any pr program, anywhere, any network. Uh, you have made Office Hours, the soul of business, absolutely a must-see as well. So look out, NBC. Raluca and Gigi, always here supporting us. I think Gigi will be gone next week with Dr. Joe Dispenza, but we'll handle it with Mikey and Gigi uh, anyways uh, as we're traveling around. BlaineBartlett.com, the mentor of mentors. That's who he is. Make sure you reach out to him. There's nobody better. Happy birthday. We're celebrating you for another year. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Love you. Awesome. All right. Tomorrow, training, 6 a.m. Pacific time, 9 a.m. Eastern time. We're going to be in Indy next week. Uh, we're going to be in Utah. We're going to be in San Diego. Uh, we're all over the place. David at dmelzer.com. I can't keep up with myself. So what I've done is I joined my own text community. I joined it. So I get alerted where I'm going to be. 949 298-2905. I'm serious. I decided that was the only way when people ask me, where am I supposed to be? I can tell my wife, 949-298-2905. I'll send a book, sign it to you, pay for shipping. I got one minute. Send all my love to Blaine Bartlett on his birthday. Gigi, Reluca, thank you so much. We're moving and grooving, trying to empower others to empower others to be happy. Even if we're not in the Happiness Hall of Fame, we're sure trying to get there. Love you all. Be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self. Do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you, guys.